Um, so actually, uh, guys, I have a phone call, a perfect phone call to tell you about. Ooh, a perfect phone call, just like Trump. Yes. Uh, it actually was with the president of a small Eastern European nation. Um, and Ontario allowed us. <laughs> we offered them military aid. Um, but I decided unilaterally to hold it from them unless they did us a favor. Do you know what the favor was? Oh, yeah. Giving to us on Patreon. Let me guess. It was giving to us on Patreon. <laughs> yes. Uh, for the small price of a cup of coffee or more, if you choose, you can support Ontario Loud on Patreon. Rest assured that your contributions will not go towards military aid for anyone, but rather making this podcast better, supporting our volunteers. And uh, yeah, that's what it does. So support us on Patreon. It's great. Go to www.ontarioloud.ca or patreon.com slash Ontario Loud today. Sweet. Which country was it, Chris? Which small Eastern European country were you talking to? Um, for uh, pending legal reasons, I can't <laughs> tell you. It's on a secure server. I'll never know. Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs had between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Sam Andre. And today we are done talking about the federal election. See you later, Canada. This is a podcast about Ontario things once again. Thank God. <laughs> that, that, that 40 days felt long. It was, uh, yeah, I hope never to talk about the rest of Canada ever again. But before we dive in, I think we need to recognize one Kate Hammer, who is not on the pod today for uh, winning the Ontario Loud federal election pool. Okay, congratulations. I hope that you agree, as I think is the consensus with us, that this shall forever be a marker of the fairness of Ontario Loud games and that they should never be criticized again, uh, that they're only a good thing and the judgment is always right. What did she win, Chris? Uh, she won this great on-air prop. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to try harder next time. Damn. And then also subsequent shade thrown at her previous shade thrown at my ability to adjudicate games. Who came second? Uh, actually, that's a good question. I should put the results on. Um, I, I ask on, because on I, I came second. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> thought that was going to go better for me. The <laughs> <laughs> prize goes to Lexi. Your prize is by forgetting that you can. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I appreciate the shout out. <laughs> this is a great incentive. Uh, I really, I, I thought we should, gamifying this podcast would be good. And I think we're, we're doing, doing a good job of it. So uh, we were actually not the only ones taking a break from Ontario, though. Uh, the Ontario government was, too. Yes, after nearly a five-month recess, Premier Doug Ford has now reemerged to remind everyone that he is, in fact, the premier of this province, has some governing to do, and is a, a really nice guy. Let's take a listen. I want to thank our all-star MPP from Willowdale. So I affable. First, I first want to congratulate all the candidates, no matter what political stripe they come <laughs> wow. from. Uh, that they ran. They put their name in the hat. Congratulations. No you won or you lost. I'm losing or winning. I called, I called the Prime Minister and offered my congratulations to the Prime Minister and told him, I understand politics. Let's get down to work now. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're going to work with the federal government. We're working with municipalities right across this province. You know something, Mr. Speaker? That is why, at this critical time, I think it's important for Ontario to step up. Step up, unite the country. I've never seen the country so divided. Had a great visit with uh, Premier Blaine Higgs yesterday here in Ontario. We had Scott Moe on the phone. I talked to Francis Legault. What a great Premier Response. for Quebec. I talked to Jason Kenney. We all feel the same way. We need to unite this country because what is good for Canada 
is good for Ontario, and what is good for Ontario? So stirring clips of a premier who, once known for a tendency towards highly partisan fights, now seems as friendly and placid as a golden retriever on Xanax. What do we make of the government's new tone? Does it signal a real shift in what we think this government's actual approach is going to be? Um, they seem to put like a decent amount of actual effort into this reset. I mean, did they? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you could say the words that it's like a new tone and a new adult tone, and the media will run a story about that because it's you know interesting for people to do that sort of mea culpa a bit. But I think, a, I think they know they're in the shit on getting reelected at this point, and so are. I think rightfully searching for solutions on how to rebuild in particular the premier's brand. I don't know that like, and they do, I guess, in fairness to them, keep walking back some of the most controversial changes uh, and certainly the like pace of frantic, broad changes affecting the province have, has slowed. Um, and it will be interesting to see if um, that pace continues to be slow uh, going forward. But I think, uh, like, I don't know, I just think the first bill they introduced when they got back was, like, to allow dogs on patios and to allow, you know, drinking in the airport 24 hours a day. Like, that's fine. I have dogs and maybe I'm excited about that. But it's just like the, none of this reflects the priorities that people are telling them, uh, which is fix the mess you've made in education and developmental services and hallway medicine and like i just at the core this is still the same government yeah it's it's just it's they're fighting their their instincts and i think i think they've realized that i think they they came into this thing thinking that government was a lot easier than it really is right i mean that's really at the end of the day this is part of a process that most people go through in a series of weeks after winning an election where you shift your perspective from one of opposition to one of government. And it has just taken these guys well over a year to get to a point that other people get to much more quickly. Um, that's how I see this. I mean, I don't know if I don't know if they can actually get there and if they'll be able to fight their instincts and and really transition and maybe having, you know, different people in these cabinet positions probably helps um, putting more of their more affable people, um, you know, to some of these portfolios. Well, they'll be able to show some of that leadership within caucus is good. And but we'll see. I mean, I this is the kind of thing that's easy to say now. But uh, once you get back into the swing of things, once you start getting attacked again by the opposition, once there's another bad, um, you know, reaction to a policy they put forward, their instinct is still going to be to respond with um, with with counterattacks. Uh, so I think that'll be the real test is are they actually going to be able to rise above it when the rubber hits the road? And I, and I also think like from a substantive perspective, one of the key ways that they could have you know, shown a change in tone through action would be what he sort of, what Doug Ford sort of alluded to during the federal campaign around the challenge, the court challenge to the carbon tax saying, oh, you know, I'll let the people decide. Well, the people very clearly decided two and three Canadians voted for a party that supports carbon pricing. And yet, you know, whatever the day after, two days after they said the court challenge is going to continue, which everyone knows is blatantly a political challenge and has no chance really of success. And so this is this is the same old government, in my opinion. But I, I just want to add that 
I think we we look at this sometimes probably too much from a perspective of people who disagree with his policy to begin with. And I think there are a lot of people out there who probably don't don't have much problem with the way these guys are governing from a policy perspective, um, but didn't like the tone that they were hearing and didn't like the aggressiveness and adversarial nature of the government. And I think it's worrying from the perspective of people who want to defeat Doug Ford in the future that that he might actually be able to put a happy, positive face on what is a, you know, quite um, terrible and and uh, destructive policy objective and, and set of set of objectives and mandate that he's trying to carry out. So, I mean, I hope that they're unsuccessful just because I think building a big coalition against him includes persuading those people who don't really mind that he's going to be um, significantly underfunding certain social programs in order to fund uh, his own tax cuts or um, uh, rolling back progress that has been made in other areas. Yeah, I, but I actually do agree with that. And I think that in what's the interesting thing in this shift is that they're doing it a little bit clumsily. You can tell it's a little bit uncomfortable for them. So uh, recently, they stepped down on uh, child care. They uh, were going to, I believe, cut 15 million from child care in Toronto, and they cut that down to 2.8 million, which sounds like a, a huge victory. But the memo they sent to the city on it says that uh, denies that it is actually it was a climb down on the basis of politics, and said it is a reflection of updated data for this year, which takes into account a variety of demographic and socioeconomic factors. The increase is not a response to recent criticisms of the planned cuts. And just sort of as if this was some kind of forecasting <laughs> correction, like, um, oh, actually, we looked at the data and it yeah. turns out there's a lot of kids in Toronto. And oh, well, we just updated our forecast. And oh, you get like, you get 14 more. I don't think we knew we shouldn't fucking get that before we announced cuts. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, it actually reminds us of some of the worst of our reverse uh, or some of the worst of the liberal government's climb downs. Uh, there's no way this was a, just a data issue. And I think, you know, like in so many corners, they've boxed themselves into sort of governing corners and um, you can tell it is uncomfortable for them. So I'm not sure it's going to be uh, successful for them. While we were away, though, I'm curious uh, what caught your guys' eye um, in terms of what the government has been up to if we as sort of progressives don't want to sort of let the tone shift permeate and we need to sort of project a message of, no, this government is still doing really bad stuff back to Ontario. What kind of stuff should we be talking about? Uh, well, healthcare continues to be a challenge for the province. Uh, I mean, the government is investing in the short term uh, enough to be, you know, possibly increasing the healthcare budget next year. I think it was by about two or three uh, percent, based on um, based on their their budget projections and estimates, which um, should be enough in the short term to keep things um, okay in the healthcare system. But they made some pretty tall promises around ending hallway medicine, and um, and then we we had the FAO. Uh, financial accountability officer um, write a report basically saying that they uh, aren't investing the money that's necessary just to keep up with the growth of demand for uh, long-term care beds in the future. And the growth of long-term care uh, or the the pressure on the long-term care system is a huge reason that is um, that we have this hallway healthcare problem. Uh, we, we that's one of the, the sort of the um, underlying factors that needs to be addressed and. Building tens of thousands of uh, long-term care beds uh, in the next 20 years is a difficult task. I think the government's finally getting another 15,000 built, and the uh, projection is we need 55,000 by 2034. So even with um, modest investments in healthcare, it just doesn't look plausible that 
uh, by the next election, the government is going to have made uh, any dent at all in the hallway healthcare uh, problem. So that's uh, that's one that I think people need to keep um, keep on them and keep reminding them of their promises and uh, and that they're um, not going to be able to deliver on. On a slightly more positive note, I think um, it was good to see the government uh, introduce some tougher penalties on animal abuse uh, and uh, an overhaul of some of the OSPCA legislation that uh, previously existed that had the OSPCA uh, doing inspections uh, based, based on complaints and acting in a role as essentially the, the investigator uh, and enforcer of animal cruelty legislation. And that um, that process had been in place for about 10 years and uh, was struck down recently by the courts, um, saying that you can't really uh, outsource that responsibility to a private organization like the OSPCA. And so this new PAWS Act, Provincial Animal Welfare Services, pretty cute name, guys, way to go, will allow the province to take over inspections and enforcement, which I think is great. Uh, but of course, the devil's in the details when it comes to funding it. Uh, I mean, you can create a great system, but if you don't actually pay for the um, the, the people to do the inspections and enforcement properly, and, and there's no sense yet as to how much money is going to be behind this new uh, new setup, um, then it's not going to work. So we'll see. Uh, hopefully, fingers crossed um, that the the system will actually improve as a result of this. So first of all. If I was going to think about calling this episode anything, it was going to be our warm, fuzzy premiere. And I think this is the warmest and fuzziest of the new laws, maybe having docs on patios as well. But also the thing that struck me in this is they're increasing the number of inspectors in Ontario for animal cruelty from 60 to 100, which at first I was like, oh, that's great. They're hiring more inspectors. That's that's excellent. I would like more inspectors looking at animal cruelty. Second of all, there are only 100 animal cruelty inspectors in the whole province, you could fit all of the animal inspectors in Ontario with our huge agriculture and like industry into a medium-sized conference room. That is fucked up. And I'm glad they're doing something about it. But yeah, they're not doing enough. Uh, so I think the ability to get a deal with city council voted 22 to 3 to uh, move forward on the provinces transit plans including the ontario line that sort of newly dubbed relief line uh, that will you know track much further west than the original proposal that the city had spent by the way hundreds of millions of dollars in planning and is now being mostly thrown out so i think you know the province and the city i guess deserve some uh, credit for coming to terms um on a deal that allows at least planning to move forward but this is i think you know mo- Again, going back to the drawing board on replanning of uh, this project because they've now changed the route, they've changed the train um, technology and like size, and so uh, it for those hoping to one day ride a new line in Ontario, like it now feels again like a good decade away. Even though they say 2027, everyone says that that's basically impossible. Um, and, you know, Adam Vaughn is probably the most apoplectic about it, who, you know, is the MP that represents um, the uh, riding that would receive most of the new line. Uh, and, you know, rightfully, I think, points out that no real planning has been done about how to tunnel uh, that sort of thing through, you know, kind of the densest part of the city in terms of like condo garages and sewers and, you know, gets into like um, very close to the lake and uh, it's all based on like literally no design work. And so I just think it's like they deserve credit and they got good headlines about moving forward on that. But it's just like, ugh, we're just so far away yet again on any progress on this file. Yeah. And it, it, there's something in something both of you guys said about expectations. And 
how this government is able to play the expectations game. And I, I want to be clear, like I don't think they're playing some game of four-dimensional chess where they're setting our expectations and then consciously going one way. I think they are they governed from a place where they set them so low at the beginning that now just by doing basic shit, they can meet them. Um, I mean, like we just see this in, in sort of file after file, like securing the deal with Cupy. That was some good news. It prevented a school strike, but they were in that position anyways because of their massive education cuts. They released some cautiously optimistic coverage on their Ontario Autism Program. Their expert panel finally uh, came out and some of the parent groups who actually were on our show were cautiously optimistic about it. But uh, several more of them pointed out on Twitter that this largely looks like going back to something like the program that we had. And so you basically just disrupted and thrown into chaos families' lives for a year to go back to something that everyone agreed was better than what existed previously, but still wasn't actually meeting the true need. And like class sizes, if they're going to backtrack on that, maybe great, but there's still 10,000 projected teachers out of a job. And so I just think like not letting yourselves get sucked into, well, you're going to, I think the frame they set, the frame they set is really, really important. There's also a a great example of uh, the opposite where the premier came out and made some pretty crazy promises on legal aid on the radio, then just call my office and we'll make sure you get legal aid. Like nothing's, nothing's wrong and set expectations incredibly high. And then we find out from Freedom of information requests that the CBC put in that um, his basically his office was thrown into chaos as a result of a whole bunch of people starting to actually reach out to them and be like, yeah, uh, I need legal aid help, please. Like, what the fuck? And suddenly they were uh, backtracking and forced to clarify and all this stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I think they seem to be flailing on both ends of the expectations game. So I know I said we were done with the federal election, but no. I want to go back to the federal election. <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> Because it's, uh, I have Stockholm syndrome, and um, I did. I think it's just been actually like a kind of an interesting week for the Federation. Um, like if we and like I guess we contrast Doug Ford's approach with Jason Kenny's kind of Darth Vader style. What here are the cuts, you know, and sort of putting the blame squarely on the federal government for the need for those cuts, despite the fact that Alberta does not pay a sales tax, um, and sort of the nationalist separation, Western. Wexit headlines that have been happening. I'm just curious, like, if we were sitting in an Ontario government right now, uh, and maybe even this Ontario government, uh, because, you know, I think Doug Ford would be extremely likely to hire us. How is, like, what is a good role for Ontario to play in this situation? Is, and is his talking point of what is good for Ontario is good for Canada, what is good for Canada is good for Ontario, the right tone? I think I think it's it's a true statement um, to the for the most part, um, and has been historically true that uh, you know, what is good is for Ontario is good for Canada and and the reverse uh, in a way that maybe doesn't apply uh, always to all the other provinces. I, but I mean it, it doesn't it doesn't really do anything for the controversy or the the concerns that um, that exist. I think that what I'm what I think I'm frustrated about is the fact that Doug Ford, as somebody who is you know represents Ontario, the place where you know that that gets a lot of um, uh, here's a lot of frustration from Alberta and Saskatchewan, and is a conservative premier and has relationships with the premiers of those provinces. He has an opportunity here to 
play a role in trying to bring the country together because of that existing uh, credit like credibility that he has with them um and he could play a constructive role in trying to bring people together and i just don't think that's going to happen uh i mean and maybe that ship has sailed maybe his his credibility with uh the federal government is uh, is shot too. I mean, they certainly used him over and over and over again in the federal election. So, um, uh, and it seemed to be a, a, in a very successful way. So, um, I mean, that's that's what, what you would like. You'd like to see somebody with those kinds of relationships leveraging them to try to create more national unity. But at the same time, um, I doubt that's going to happen. I, I mean, I think it's it's always hard for Ontario to to play these roles because um, it's very easy for people to just sort of write off Ontario and Quebec's perspectives when there's so many people living here and they have. They seem to vote in a, a, a much different way than uh, than people are voting in uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan these days, and so it's difficult for an individual premier to to be the one to sort of bridge these gaps for others. But um, that doesn't mean it can't be done. Yeah, I mean, like I think the country in general is in a difficult position right now. I think there are you know millions of people in Alberta and Saskatchewan that I think are rightfully feeling that they're being blamed by the environmentalist community that I think tends to like think of big oil as this like evil corporate entity and not think of like the humans behind it, if I'm making sense. And so I think like the, the many people that it employs. Yeah. And so like, and you know, the federal election is like not a good time to have those sorts of difficult discussions. And so I think there's some healing to be done. And like, obviously the pipeline continues to be a super, difficult issue for the federal government to like thread the needle on. Um, And so I just think none of that really involves Ontario. Like that is a challenge for Ottawa and the West and, you know, to some extent, BC. Um, But I think Ontario is the biggest province um, can play a supportive role in uh, trying to instill some national unity. And I thought like the comments um, from the Manitoba premier uh, were really strong in that regard as well. And so like kudos actually to, Doug Ford for like saying the right things. And he's obviously, I think, getting some good advice on that front. Um, and But I think um, to the points that have been made, like at the end of the day, this this is not a fight that Ontario is going to like play a really major role in. Yeah. And actually back to expectations. I mean, I think he is thought of as such a bruiser uh, and such a partisan that I think if he just sort of shows up, looks Justin Trudeau in the eye and doesn't a dick he actually seems to people like he is legitimately bridge building um and benefits from that uh past reputation so it 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 is interesting because uh yeah um it's a big contrast to someone like jason kenny now can we talk a bit about western alienation in more detail or do we not want to get onto that in yeah i I mean uh the I, I i mean i know a lot of people have a lot of people have weighed in on this and everyone has an opinion and some of the opinions are very uh, strong on both sides like i and i think like sam i i i understand where the alienation is coming from and i see why people say okay fine like you want to build a pipeline but what about equalization but what about these other laws that you've passed that make it harder to um develop in the oil sands compared to you know competitors in the united states um, you know, what about the fact that we've our economy has been battered for years, um, you know, basically since sort of um, since the collapse in the oil prices in the you know, five years ago or so. Uh, and um, we haven't seen the same support that other places are getting. But at the same time, I, I mean, it goes back to, to sort of perspectives and uh, looking at looking at this in context, I guess. And it feels like 
it feels like that context isn't getting through always to people in in the West. They they've been they've suffered substantially compared to the peak of oil prices. But at the peak of oil prices, Alberta was not just the most prosperous province in Canada; it was the most prosperous jurisdiction in North America. Uh, their average per capita GDP was more than twice that of the Maritimes. Like we're talking about an incredibly rich part of Canada, and they've come down from that for sure, and that's not good. But they're nowhere near uh, in in need in the way that other parts of Canada remain remain in need, uh, and and um, that's why we have processes like equalization. And I think it's hard because that sets expectations for people that those good times are going to keep on rolling, and when they don't, you you know you feel uh, frustrated. But you know, as Chris already pointed out, they they don't have the same level of taxes that other places have, uh, and so they're. And they also actually spend more on a lot of their social programs. And Jason Kenney is choosing to balance the budget by cutting social programs. But they have other options. Uh, and if in the context, in the full context of what's happening in Canada and the economic um, situation across the country, uh, I do think that I'm not that sympathetic to to their sort of overall claim. I do get the frustration if you're, especially if you work in the oil sands or you rely indirectly on the oil sands, as a lot of people do. That the government, um, you know, can use that as a wedge in elections and can sort of demonize uh, that industry uh, in order to get votes. And um, that happened to a certain extent in this election. But at the same time, I think conversely, where where is Alberta saying that they recognize even the long term nature of the fact that we're going to be shifting away from these resources in the future? Right. Like there does. I think they they're always saying, like, meet us halfway, like, let's compromise. But I think from my perspective, I'm not seeing what their side of that compromise is that's being offered. I mean, right after the election, you get an, a letter from the Premier of Saskatchewan saying, first off, like you, if you want to bring us back into the sort of Canadian fold and and paper over these um, these divisions, the first thing you need to do is is end the carbon tax. I mean, that like that's your opening gambit for saying that you want to compromise and like, get along together. That's that's never going to fly. You can't possibly expect that to happen after after an election. That went the way it did. Um, so I, I think there needs to be a lot more, a lot more thinking about what actually could be done on both sides to try to bridge this gap. And I think the media is at fault for focusing on the wrong things uh, in this conversation uh, to an extent that becomes very frustrating. I mean, the first past the post system makes it look like everybody in Alberta voted for the conservatives, and that's not the case, right? I mean, two thirds of people did, but the other third of people voted for. All the other parties, and that you know, if a third of the seats in Alberta went orange and, and red instead of blue, uh, we'd be having a very different conversation. But that's that's masked by the fact that the map looks blue, um, which is not the full story. I would go even a step further than that and say that I am deeply troubled by the national narrative that has gone back to, and I think with good intentions, gone back to oh, how do we correct some of the wrong that was done in the federal election as demonizing oil? Like we need to move faster on moving away and divesting from oil and gas. Like it's just the clock is ticking on that. I was reading a report yesterday that like the ocean rising projections are like actually, if anything, conservative and we actually could see worse and more rapid climate change. And like I would like to see maybe a national conversation on how we transition supports for the workers and how we put in how, how do we create an economy in Alberta that can be post oil and post oil and gas and I hope that's where uh, Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau go because Jagmeet Singh actually put that as one of his top six priorities um, for supporting a minority government and so um, I hope that's something they work together on. 
And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. It is that time of the show where I give you a preview of what's going to happen next week. And I'm extremely excited to do that because next week we are going to be starting our coverage of the Ontario Liberal Leadership Race. We're going to be sitting down with candidate Kate Graham to talk about her vision for well-being for Ontario. Uh, we're going to talk amongst ourselves and shoot the shit a little bit about how we think the campaign's going so far. What's good? What's bad? What do we like? What do we not like? And we have a series of interviews with all the leadership candidates that we are uh, looking at lining up. We uh, have one set up with Mitzi Hunter. We are in talks with Team Michael Coteau. We have sent an email and received a response and we will consider it from Team Steven Del Duca. Really excited to help bring a little bit of really excited about that. Want to thank Aisha Anwar, Philip Askew, and Harmon Mundy for being our, as the premier would say it, all-star volunteers for Ontario Loud. Um, could not do this without them. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's it for me. See you next week.